0: Hello, and welcome to Great Lakes Stories, the podcast that tells great stories about our Great Lakes. My name is Blair Early. In this episode, we're going to talk about our region's role in the 18th Amendment, otherwise known as Prohibition. This time in the world was marked by economic prosperity and cultural shifts worldwide. It gave us jazz, flappers, and art deco. Aviation became an industry, and people started getting their first electric appliances in their homes. Colloquially, this was known as the Roaring Twenties. That's right, the duration of the Roaring Twenties decade, one known for partying, music, and F. Scott Fitzgerald, was during Prohibition, a nationwide ban on alcohol. If that doesn't tell you everything you need to know about Americans, nothing will. But to better tell this story, we need to get to a more fitting atmosphere. Ah, that's better. Prohibition was a nationwide constitutional ban on the production, importation, transportation, and sale of alcoholic beverages, and it lasted for 13 years, from 1920 to 1933. Now there were only two legal ways around it. The first was if you were a doctor because you were legally allowed to prescribe alcohol to your patients. What a time. And the second was if you had it in your house and you had bought it prior to the ban. Now you're probably asking yourself, why? How could this have even remotely happened? I mean, you think about our lives today, and it's almost unfathomable. It's at every sporting event and concert. It's in your house after a long day at work or at a restaurant during a celebration. But for 13 years in the early 20th century, it was illegal. It's important to understand that a century ago, the country was a much different place. Americans were drinkers, hard drinkers. The average American swilled a quart of whiskey per day. That's almost one liter of hard liquor seven days a week. And this led to high rates of domestic abuse and absenteeism at work. In fact, the week after prohibition went into effect, Ford Motor Company reported a drop in absenteeism of about 40%. Now, for some scope into just how much drinking was a part of the cultural fabric of our nation, Detroit had more than 1,700 saloons operating in 1915. That's one for every 50 families. And they were open 24 hours a day to cater to more than just the evening crowds and slake our thirst. Folks on their way to work in the morning would stop in for an aptly named corpse survivor to shake their hangover from the night before. Workers were going to saloons for a complimentary cup of soup with the purchase of a drink at lunch. Men would get paid on a Friday and take their paycheck directly to the saloon and spend the entire thing. And you thought your once-weekly work happy hours got crazy. This national thirst led to movements like the Anti-Saloon League and the Women's Christian Temperance Union, who pushed to make America dry, and in January of 1920, they succeeded. But just because hooch was now illegal didn't mean it slow us down. At midnight, January 17, 1920, America was officially dry. But just a few minutes after that, there were reports of armed robbers in Chicago emptying two freight cars of casks of whiskey. A bonded warehouse robbed of grain alcohol, and a truck carrying booze was hijacked. Alcohol was now illegal, but that certainly didn't slow down the business. It just moved it underground. With prohibition in effect, many Americans near the Canadian and Mexican borders simply crossed international lines to places like Tijuana or Niagara Falls, where they could imbibe legally. But many breweries and distilleries in places like Ontario saw an opportunity to fill a need for their neighbors to the south, and being in such close proximity, the supply chain to bring it to America was a short one. At the height of Prohibition, 75% of the country's whiskey came through Detroit, including most of the booze headed to another Great Lakes city, Chicago. But how can you get gallons of illegal booze across an international border without incident? Well, Detroit's unique geographical characteristics actually made it especially suitable for bootleggers. With Lake St. Clair to the north and the Detroit River below that dividing the city from Canada, it was a veritable superhighway for illicit drink. The Detroit River is less than a mile wide in most places, and with the marshes, boathouses, and numerous piers and docks that line the river banks, it was a smuggler's paradise. Coast Guard and Detroit police boats were woefully underpowered to keep up with the bootleggers' powerboats, not to mention the ever-evolving ingenuity of the bootleggers. One clever contraption that was discovered was an underwater cable system that ran from a home on Peach Island at the mouth of the Detroit River on the Canadian side to the foot of Ultra Road that carried metal cylinders loaded with 50 gallons of whiskey each over on the American side. Of course, when winter fell, The lakes and the river froze, opening up miles of frozen thoroughfare for bootleggers to run their stashes. These runs could be as small as a person ice skating with a sled in tow, all the way up to a caravan of 75 vehicles. They would all be unloaded into waiting cars on the shore or into boathouses that contained hidden tunnels to the house or neighborhood for distribution or consumption. And things only got easier when the Ambassador Bridge was completed in 1927, and the Windsor Tunnel three years after that. All you had to do was hop in the car. And this led to more ingenious bootlegging inventions. False bottoms of trucks and trunks with hidden compartments to hide the booze that was crossing the border. However, these innovations weren't the only thing created during Prohibition. It was also the inception of the Speakeasy. The Speakeasy got its name because you actually had to whisper about them when discussing where to get a drink after your hard day's work. Many of these establishments were actually bars before Prohibition and simply went underground after. Quite a few were actually upstanding cafes serving soft drinks and food during the day, but if you give them the code word for a cold tea, for example, they would slip you a lager in a teapot. Cold tea. Sounds good right about now. Now, most of these speakeasies are long gone. However, a few of them have survived and are still bars, and we want to share a few with you. If you're in Detroit, stop by the two-way inn, and that's at 17897 Mount Elliott. The two way inn has been around since 1876 and held a number of different roles throughout the years, including a jail, uh, a general store, and a dentist office. Actually, the dentist office was perfect for laying suspicion during Prohibition because the dentists were legally allowed to prescribe alcohol to their patients. Perfect. So go in and check it out and ring the bell above the bar if you want to buy around for the place. If you find yourself in southwest Detroit, check out Abix on Gilbert Street. Now, this place is believed to be one of the oldest continuously operating family-owned bars in the city. The bar was built in 1907 and never skipped a beat come hell, high water, or prohibition. The physical bar and the tin ceiling are actually original to the building, as is the cash register. So if you want to step back in time and raise a glass to a different area, this is your spot. Now, last but not least, my personal favorite bar in the city is the Nancy Whiskey in Corktown. Now, the Nancy actually started out as a grocery store named Digby's in 1902, uh, and shortly after it got converted to a bar for the neighborhood's Irish population, and it has a liquor license that's been active for over 110 years. Nancy would be proud. Of course, Detroit isn't the only Great Lakes city with a rich heritage of prohibition skirting. Chicago does as well. If you end up in Old Town, stop by Marge's Still. Now that's at 1758 Sedgwick Street. Marge's has been around since 1885 and is the oldest continuously running tavern in Chicago. And they say during prohibition, gin was made in a bathtub on the second floor and then served to patrons in the basement. And the original bar is still intact actually for a taste of history. Perfect. Now, if you're in West Town, the Chip Inn is your spot. It operated as a speakeasy during Prohibition, and it still only accepts cash. So trust us, it's authentic. Now a highlight in the Windy City for us is the Green Mill. It was a favorite bar for Chicago mobsters, and was even Al Capone's favorite joint in the city. They openly operated, actually, because Capone had a number of Chicago police on payroll. And today you can stop in and take in the old world feel as the bar hasn't changed much and they still even have live bands playing. Okay, that does it for our very first episode of Great Lakes Stories. Do you have a Great Lakes story you'd like us to tell? Send me an email at blair at greatlakesproud.com. That's blair, B-L-A-I-R, Greatlicksproud.com and stick around for a great gin fizz recipe. Thanks for listening. Okay, as promised, we are going to make you a nice gin fizz. So, for this recipe, you're going to need two ounces of gin. I prefer uh, Valentine Distillings Liberator Gin. It's a nice light floral gin, but hey, whatever you want to use is up to you. Then you're going to need one ounce of fresh lemon juice, three quarter ounces of simple syrup, and one ounce of club soda. And then you're going to need an egg white. The only other thing you'll need for this is a cocktail shaker, so go ahead and dust that thing off. So let's start at the top. I'm going to Ooh, measure out two ounces of gin and pour it in. There is one. And here comes number two. Beautiful. Okay, next, I'm going to measure one ounce of lemon juice. Uh, you should freshly squeeze if you can, but I don't have time for that. So just something the Kroger brand. After a few of these gin fizzes, you won't even be able to taste the difference anyway. We'll measure that up, one ounce of that. In it goes. Next, we need three quarters of an ounce of simple syrup. And measure that. Ooh, there we go, perfect. A perfect pour. And this is all going into our cocktail shaker. In the last piece, is our egg white so we're just gonna crack that take your time remember we only want the white not the yolk oh there we go beauty all right so at this point we've got all of our ingredients except for our club soda in our shaker so the only other thing to do is put our lid on and give it a shake for about 30 seconds Now, after you're shaking, you just need to strain this out into your cocktail glass. Oh, it looks so good. Perfect. So you've got that in your glass, and you're going to open your club soda, and just top it with one ounce of club soda, uh, yes. and you have a perfect gin fizz.